This is the Scottish Football Citizen, bringing you the best of Scottish football from the past. I'm Andy Kerr, and in this episode, I sit down with former Scotland manager Craig Brown to discuss his time in charge of Scotland as he took the national team to Euro 96 in England. Craig has some excellent stories and it's always worth taking the time to listen to him tell them. I guarantee you won't be disappointed. Before I start talking to Craig, here's your weekly dose of trivia. As well as appearing as an international football player, which other sport did Andy Gorham represent Scotland at? We'll give you the answer at the end of the podcast. I'm speaking with Craig Brown. I'm sure you're all perfectly familiar with who Craig is. Craig is, of course, a legendary Scottish footballer and manager of the Scotland national team during the 1990s. So first of all, Craig, how are you? I'm well now. I, for a few months, uh, I was struggling a bit with a health scare. I had an aneurysm six months ago or five months ago, uh, but uh, the recovery is on schedule and I'm feeling okay now, thanks. Excellent. Well, we're all glad to see you um, doing better for it and looking forward to the Euros as well, which is why we're talking this morning. We're talking about uh, Euro 96 ahead of the big clash of Scotland versus England at Wembley, which is, of course, a game that you're very familiar with. But before we get round to that, we'll start off with the previous Euros in Euro 92. Now, we've already covered uh, Euro 92 on the Scottish Football Citizen podcast in one of our earlier episodes. After qualifying for the Euros in 1982 in Sweden, how confident were you that we were going to qualify for the World Cup in the USA in 1994? Well, Andy, I've got to go back just quickly to Euro 92 because there's a lot of misconception here, I think, and I I think there's a lot of discredit because the man who deserves most credit, in my opinion, in international football is Andy Roxburgh because we hadn't qualified ever before only eight teams qualified. Now, that's quite significant uh, for Euro 92. Eight teams, and we were one of the eight. And at the moment, 24 teams qualified. And even if we get out of the group here, 16 of the 24 are going out of the group this, this time, which really means that you're, you're four best thirds. So you can be third in the group and still get out and into the last 16. And that's only putting in the last 16. In 1992... <laughs> Uh, you know, I feel quite strongly here that I think Andy doesn't get the credit he's due because we were in the last eight. And that was through the qualification process and only eight qualified. So we had to win the group to get there. So uh, I think, I beg your pardon, uh, it was a best played second, but it was a very much more difficult job to get eighth then than even to get into the last 16 now. But that's my personal, personal opinion, <laughs> you know, and I'm slightly biased. But I'm delighted what's happening now, and Stevie Clark's done a terrific job with the team now. But you're asking me about uh, Euro 92. Uh, we were a bit unfortunate again. I think we've always been unfortunate. And I think to qualify for the World Cup in 94, we had a very difficult uh, group, and uh, we had the worst defeat, unfortunately, we've had. In my recollection with the Scottish team when we lost to Portugal. And I think that more or less finished our uh, opportunity. And Andy resigned after that, I think a bit hastily, in my opinion, again. And I was uh, landed with the last two games in the group. So 
I started in the last two games of for the qualification for '94, uh, and uh, then I managed to get the full group, the full qualification program for '96. I went to the World Cup in '94 too in America, and it was a good experience uh, over there with the meeting up with the guys like Walter Smith and Alec Ferguson. So it was a a learning curve too to go to the USA and watch the World Cup, although we weren't involved, weren't playing in it. Given that you took over from Andy, like you said, for the final two games uh, of the World Cup 94 qualification, uh, when you were offered the job on a full-time basis, did you have to think twice about it? I didn't really have to think twice because, uh, you know, I didn't for a minute uh, consider when they were uh, promoting the names for the for the job. I mean, we had the, you know, the high-profile guys... Uh, I think the favourite in my recollection was maybe Graham Souness. Uh, Gordon Strachan at that time was still being touted for the job. Uh, I, I didn't for a minute think I would be considered. And it was actually a surprise. I thought I'll, I'll, I'll hold the fort for two games. And I, I loved my job with the under-21 team. <laughs> you know, and I was working with a lot of the youth teams as well. So I was perfectly happy. And I was just hoping and praying that the next manager would keep me on as the under-21 manager but then uh, I was asked to take the job I think in the strength of uh, my work with the under 21 team and you know we had a youth team in the final of the World Cup against Saudi Arabia and we had the under 21 team in the semi-final of Europe so I had done quite well with the young, uh, underage teams and I got on well enough with the national team you know I, I, I was involved in a lot of the training uh, with Andy, but it was a surprise. I think everybody expected a clean, a clean sweep. In fact, everyone connected with the failed regime to be dismissed. But I was surprised and very pleased. I didn't have to think twice to take the job. I was working with the SFA anyway. I was an assistant technical director. So I had a job at the SFA and I had the under-21 team, sole charge of that team. But the temptation of the... I think you don't get a higher... Uh, accolade and been asked to take charge of your national team and I, I couldn't A, believe it and secondly I couldn't refuse it Excellent, well it turned out it was a very good move for just about everybody concerned and I know that you've said previously about the pressure on you given that Euro 96 was in England um, that what was it, I believe that they told you that if you didn't qualify for it then you'd be shown the door, is that true? Well, it was. I don't know if it was exactly stated like that, but it was broadly indicated that we had to qualify because it was next door. And you could imagine the Tartan Army up here in Scotland and the tournament in England. I mean, that was unthinkable. That's what I was told. And therefore, you better, you better get us there. Now, the same happened two years later when it was France for the World Cup because, again, you couldn't get a closer venue for the World Cup one of the British countries or France so I was again uh, threatened you better <laughs> you better get to me France uh, but these were challenges which uh, you know I, I respected and I think it was quite right had I not managed I would have had to walk anywhere and I wouldn't and I, I felt so embarrassed see at that time there was uh, it was customary to qualify we were used to getting through 
And if he didn't get through, uh, it was a major humiliation. You know, that was one of the reasons when eventually I did retire, when we failed after, you know, a playoff even uh, with England. I thought, this is... But now, 22 or 23 years later, uh, if you think back, if I thought back, it might not have been such a shame or a, a ashamed experience to fail. But uh, I felt that at the time, and uh, I was quite fortunate that we managed to qualify for two tournaments. Of course, I mean, nobody knew just what was going to happen after um, France 98. But anyway, that's for another story. Um, how did you prepare for the Euros um, by going over to America? Well, I, I just I had great experience with the national team because I think no one can buy the experience I had. And that was working with, in my opinion, uh, the best ever manager on the planet. Uh, Alec Ferguson, he wasn't Sir Alec then, but uh, Sir Alec Ferguson, to get the privilege of working with him, you must really be pretty thick if you don't learn quite a lot just listening and watching and uh, trying to click into what he's doing and the way he operated. Uh, of course, I knew him as a friend, as a pal, and as a player, and as a coach. You know, we were on the coaching courses together and we played the same. Scottish youth team together so I knew him well and that's why it's an old Palzac football I think he took uh, he took me and I was only the Clyde manager when he uh, and I think the best manager ever he phoned me and said to me how would you like the holiday of a lifetime <laughs> I said what where are we going he says Mexico oh, that sounds okay and he says the SFA is paying so we'll go but I remember him joking and saying we'll get three games to play but we won't let that interfere with our enjoyment too much but, but so it was a great honour to be asked by it. now when I had to, to take the job myself I had a good experience because Andy Roxford was excellent as well and uh, he had the first manager ever to qualify for, for Europe and they get also qualify for the World Cup uh, terrific uh, won the European Youth Championship with Scotland and that's quite an achievement if, if a Scottish team wins a European event, I think it's a, a major achievement. So uh, I was privileged to learn and to just be in the environment when these two guys were in charge of Scotland, and that gave me great experience. In the build-up to uh, Euro 96 um, and the preparations, things maybe didn't go quite as well as you would have liked with three losses just before the tournament. How did that kind of affect the way that you dealt with things, particularly when you dealt with the media, when they were asking if things were falling away before the tournament started? Uh, well, I didn't. I, I never had any uh, doubts about, uh, the. first of all, the players, when I had the full-strength team, or as strong a team as I could get. And I didn't have any doubt about the response uh, when the competition started. And I think the response was excellent. And, you know, we played 10 qualifying games and we lost only three goals, which is, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, I think the key to qualification or to success is don't concede. Now, obviously, you've got to score at the other end. And incidentally, it was the very same for the World Cup in uh, 98. We played 10 qualifying games, we lost only three goals. So, uh, the defensive record was excellent. And, you know, the the system which is in vogue now, uh, which is uh, fashionable, 
uh, with quite a lot of people, including Stevie Clark, is a 3-5-2. And we were doing that then. That's over 20 years ago. Uh, and why was I doing that? Because the most successful club teams, an international team in Europe at that time, was undoubtedly Germany. The German team won Euro 96. The top German teams were winning in Europe. You know, we even go to Paul Lambert's team, uh, Dortmund, and they played 3-5-2. And uh, the top teams in Germany did that. The club sides, the national team played that way. And the under-21 team that we had to play <laughs> and managed to beat in the quarter-final of Europe, uh, they played that way. So uh, that uh, influenced me with regard to the system that we played. And, you know, I'm a great advocate of it. Uh, and I think it's the only time, and it's quite interesting, you know, Scotland playing Netherlands in a friendly there uh, and doing very, very well. Uh, the only team we had to change when, in my time, in the early part of my time anyway, was when we played Holland because their house style for, for play under Gus Hiddink and under Dick Advocat, they played a 3-4-3. Three, three. Now they've got three up, and they've got two flyers, usually two wingers that could fly, <laughs> and would pull it through the middle. You know, it was a bit of a team. You had maybe Zend in our overmars in the wide position, so we had to play a back four against G uh, the Netherlands. The only time we played a back four was when they played three up, and I didn't want to go man for man at the back against the quality they had. So I'm going on here, sorry, Andy, a wee bit about tactics, which is not what you asked me, but. Not a problem. It's still it's still interesting because, like you say, um, Scotland these days are using the three five two, and um, you know when Steve Clark brought that in at first, people were going, "Oh, this won't work. This won't work." And yet here we are, a year and a bit on, we're reaping the results from it. And like you say, if you don't concede, then chances are you're going to do a lot better. And you've just led me in quite nicely to what I was going to ask next. So with the the first game being against the Dutch. Your tactics obviously worked because we managed to keep them to a nothing each draw, given that they had such star quality in their team. How did that affect the mood and the build-up to the England game? Were people more confident now, knowing that we'd gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with a world-class team and managed to get something from it? Yeah, well, I think there was, there was a degree of uh, optimism after the draw with Holland, who were one of the favourites for the tournament as well, also with England. Now, and they had a fantastic team. So it was a good, uh, it was a good game. It was a good performance uh, by Scotland. And I think that to take that uh, nothing each draw, not to concede against Holland into the game at Wembley was uh, very positive. And so we went to play England with a degree of optimism. And uh, you know, I'm I'm a, a supreme optimist. I never think we're going to lose. <laughs> You know, you might say I'm a bit naive, but I'm not naive. But I always feel confident in the team that we've got and what we're going to do. And I felt quite optimistic uh, against England. Although we watched them in the opening game, they played Switzerland, and we watched them. Uh, and you know, we you realised that their main man, uh, I was proved right, was Gascoigne. And Gascoigne can be quiet for long spells in the game but then he can burst into action and you know a flash of Gascoigne as we saw was enough to win the game for them really but you know we we certainly I think we acquitted ourselves well 
against Holland. We went to Wembley and again were actually cautiously optimistic about it. And I think everyone agrees that uh, had we scored with a penalty, had Gary and Gary himself, uh, McAllister says, I'm no, if we'd scored with that penalty, we'd have won the game because we were well on top at the time and uh, we, we silenced the vast majority of the crowd and our eight or nine thousand were terrific. The Tartan Army down at that game, <laughs> you know, uh, small in numbers, but unbelievably vocal and supportive. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, we missed the penalty and uh, we lost the game. I was going to say just before we came to the subject of the penalty, but absolutely good to hear about that anyway. Um, when you walk out at Wembley in front of so many thousands and thousands of English fans, but then you've got the eight or nine thousand of the Tartan Army, what exactly does it feel like walking out into that cauldron of atmosphere? Well, obviously, you're proud when you're walking out with a Scottish team anywhere. And uh, I was always proud to represent uh, the Tartan Army, or to have a team to represent the Tartan Army, and the support is incredible. Uh, but it's intimidating as well if you if you think of it wrongly. If you try to get yourself worried, you could be quite worried. <laughs> you know, I was never a worrier. You know, I was always, uh, you should say, I don't know why you're so calm. And well, I, I was pretty calm. And uh, look, can we get a light-hearted moment or two, if you could, uh, with the, the lads and be be relaxed? Because they sense, if you're tense and on edge, they sense that. And it's infectious, you know. I think a calmness is uh, to be encouraged. And I would rather they weren't uh, put on the war paint in the dressing room and think doing the brave art stuff. I would rather they were concentrating. They were, they were visualising what was going to happen in the game. And they had a steely determination and a concentration. And I like to see players sitting, you know, focusing. You know, with one or two, one or two of the best, you know, when I went there as the assistant and you saw guys like McLeish and Miller, you know, Willie Miller just would sit and you could tell Willie's determined here. He's going to make sure nobody gets past here. And like, you know, McLeish the same. And you would see guys, you know, experienced players, Graham Soon is sitting and he's not he's thumping his chest and saying come on things like that he's sitting focusing and, and I really like to see I worried that when a guy's bouncing about shouting the odds I'm saying this guy's over excited he need to calm him down a bit now the more experienced players were very calm and very assured and it was again the younger ones would see that and say that's what we'd expect and uh, you know, we, if there was an opportunity for a smile, we would get a wee joke in here or there. Can't tell you this, this the stories, maybe. <laughs> That's quite all right. Uh, uh, after um, after, of course, the England game, we had one um, big crunch match. We still we had one point in the group. We still hadn't scored by that point, but we were playing against the Swiss at Villa Park, and we knew that um, if England did us a wee favour against the Dutch and we were able to rack up a few goals, then we would be able to do something that no Scotland team had ever done up to that point and get out of the group. How did it feel in the build-up towards that game? Well, obviously, we, we were uh, quite optimistic, although we'd lost to England, you know, to, to place the Swiss team, who were a good side. We were optimistic. And one of the things that uh, made us... We were relatively confident was the fact that we're back at 
We're at Villa Park. We've got a huge support there. Uh, the whole thing was just buzzing. They were falling on top of the pitch to support us. And they were sucking the ball into the net. You know, you just felt that there was a lot of goodwill and a lot of expectation as well. And I, I genuinely felt that we had a, an opportunity here uh, like, none, like none other. And I think I was right. Uh, and the goal we got was excellent. Uh, uh, Alan McCoy, you like the one when he ran over to me after he scored and he hugged me, he bounced, he ran to the technical area of Andrew and I was, I was completely surprised and astonished. I, didn't, I don't know why he did it, but uh, it was a spontaneous thing. So the press said to me afterwards, why did McCoy run and hug you? After the said, he didn't run to hug me. Your auntie asked me why he wasn't on from the start in the other two games. <laughs> you know, well, he, he likes a bit of humour and uh, I think it was a way out of, uh, a way of answering the question which was humorous and uh, maybe half, half serious. I might have been... Uh, nearly telling the truth there but no he was always even when not selected for the World Cup there was never any uh, discord with Ali McCoy there's no more supportive guy and uh, no more hard working dedicated guy when he's involved with any team never mind the Scotland team his own team whatever team whatever club he played for uh, so uh, the Major disappointment was uh, not to go through and that final goal that uh, we were failed by one goal and uh, you know we thought at 4 nothing uh, in the England game we were there and then of course uh, a, a soft goal was scored and that changed the whole complexion. Patrick Cloyvert just killed our dreams yeah. unfortunately so that's what can happen and when I'm slightly too young to remember Euro 96 the first tournament I really remember was France 98 and I've got lots of memories about being at school and watching that etc although I was very young but watching back the highlights for that game at Villa Park against the Swiss like you said the atmosphere is fantastic there's loads and loads of Scotland fans but some of the chances that Scotland had within the first 15, 20 minutes or so to go ahead that seemed like on another day they'd go in no problem. Um, yeah. It just seems to be another example of the kind of culture of glorious failure that we seem to associate with the national team. And ultimately, if when you came back up the road, what was the reception like from Scotland fans? Well, you know, the, I'm trying to remember the, the next game after that. But I can't quite honestly remember it, but the reception that I've always been fortunate in the reception, in my experience, has been positive. I can't recall any antagonism from the Tartan Army. Uh, you know, even when we did lose the occasional game. And, you know, I'm quite lucky at 70 games with the team and in 50 of them we weren't beaten. <laughs> you, know, you know, a good number of draws, I've got to admit. But, you know, so, so I, don't, I don't know, I don't, recall any but and I get some pressure, quite a bit of press hostility I think uh, I always felt to justify their existence or their jobs in many cases they've got to prove they're hard men and be critical and find fault to analyse uh, and, and I used to think sometimes analysis was uh, you, you're equating that with uh, criticism you know you, you can analyse and I think be positive I would think but I, I felt that some of the 
media guys felt that to analyse, you've got to find fault rather than look, look for the positive. But that was the, 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 way, the way they did their job, and therefore I had no, no way of saying that. But the press, in one or two instances, were quite critical. But uh, I don't recall any Tartan Army people you know, I've I can go about and not get abused in any way, and you know, not the you know the side of the mouth stuff. You know, oh, Bruin, you're you're a tube or whatever the derogatory term is in Glasgow. There are a few, but we are not say them. But no, I've got to say that I'm I'm quite lucky in that uh, the goodwill was maintained, even although we failed to get out of the group. I think you've certainly done better than some Scotland managers before you and after you in that regard since as well. Now that we're coming up to very close to Euro 2020 and Steve Clark is going to be taking us into two games at Hampden and one game at Wembley, so there are comparisons that are coming between Euro 96. What advice would you give Steve Clark, particularly for walking out at Wembley and how to handle the pressure of a game against the old enemy? Well, I wouldn't presume to advise Stevie Clark because I think he's excellent and in every respect. You know, when you look at his his career, not just with Scotland, but you look at his uh, managerial uh, successes, no no one has taken West Bromwich to a higher position in the top league in England than Steve Clark. You know, he's riding in the cup final and things like that. So... uh, and he's got great experience with the uh, luminaries of the game. We know working at, uh, at uh, Liverpool, working at Chelsea, working at Newcastle. You mean the guy? And then to come up to Scotland and uh, to take command up to the position they're in now. When you see what happened, unfortunately, I've got to say that uh, to command up um, recently, you see the excellence of his work there. So. I wouldn't begin to <laughs> say to Steve Clark uh, anything about uh, tactics or uh, selection or anything. Quite honestly, if he asked me, you know, I would have opinions, and I have opinions, but I don't think it's uh, I think it's a wee bit impertinent for me to try to say, Stevie, I would do this or I would do that. Well, I was also interested. I don't know how he did. I, I read the, the even a thing like numbering the players. You know, it's strange. You know, I, I saw them all, they all get their, their uh, European Championship numbers. I wonder how he did it. I find it unusual. Like, for example, last night was the Netherlands against Scotland, the 2-2 draw, and I find it unusual seeing Greg Taylor wearing a number 13. Just, in fact, I find it unusual seeing an outfield player wearing a number 13. And, of course, that leads me back to Euro 92 as well. And I believe that um, when Andy chose the team in Euro 92, he chose it, the outfield players' numbers by the odd, odd the number of caps that they had going downwards. No, he didn't choose it. He, he gave the highest cap player his choice. And I think that was a very good uh, system. And to do that also, I've given I've given the answer away. You know, one of my biggest problems as a manager of the national team was we're flying to America to prepare for the World Cup or the European Championship, one or other, or both. We went to America for both, actually, to prepare. And then I get to, I think it must have been uh, uh, the World Cup. We got to Gatwick and uh, the travel agency said, I've got bad news for you. I said, what's that? He says, I've only got 12 seats in the business class. 
<laughs> for players. I said, oh, no, no. Get them all together, put them all in the economy then. He says, oh, no, the economy's full. The plane's full. Now, I didn't think ahead and said, I bet you people in the economy would have been happy to, uh, pe- people in business class rather would have been happy to give up their seats, <laughs> economy, give up their seats. But anyway, I then said to the, the two men in charge, I thought, this is not a job for the manager, this is a job for the captain. So I said to Colin Henry and Gary McCarthy, we need to split this squad. We've got, to, I think we're 23. I said, hey, we've got to get 12 seats in the business class for the players. Give me the 12 that you choose and tell me how they decided it. Well, it was funny. They had a meeting. They come back and I said, how did you? Before you tell me, who it is, tell me how you chose them. He says, well, we put uh, uh, one suggestion, put the names in the heart. Well, that's fair enough, but they bombed that one. Another one was the long legs, the taller, the bigger ones, need more space, put them in there. Then they say the older ones. No, no, no. You know, they even, even said the married ones. <laughs> the married men. I said, oh, where you go? They have to get in the business. And they eventually said that they decided that those were most caps. Now, I think, I think that was a fair, I think, tapped into Andy's work when, when, when name, the numbering them. There was a bit of, you know, the players, one or two are superstitious about their number and one or two think that the lower the number, the better. They don't want a, a, you know, a number other than up to 11. And, you know, or, or you take Paul Lambert, for example, he played 14 for Dortmund and he was a bit superstitious. Could he place a 14? So he would agree with that if it suited. But then... Uh, Andy's suggestion was those with most caps get the choice. So you look at the cap list and you say who's got most caps in Scotland. Well, Kenny was finished by the time we were by the job. And the goalkeeper was pretty obvious. Jim Layton's most caps, <laughs> 90, 91 caps, I think. And then the next one, uh, Alec McLeish, 77 caps. And uh, incidentally, I used to say to him, Alec, you've 77 caps, how many? You've been up for every corner that we've had. How many goals have you scored for Scotland? <laughs> I thought, like, I should, I should let you record this. But Alex <laughs> says, oh, you require it. I say, well, up for every corner. And if you watch the average number of corners in a game, you know, maybe six or seven corners. So 77 times seven. You know, you're, you're around 500 corners. And he says, I was a decoy for Kenny Dalglish, Alex says. But the, the, I wonder how Stevie... Did it or why the you're saying uh, young Taylor at number 13? Did he want 13 or was he given 13 or was it a last number available? Or did he do it? I think you have to try to without uh, giving in to your players or molly calling them, you've got to try and keep them happy. And now, if there's a guy superstitious, we had, a, we had an issue between number two and number five, for example, when Andy was the manager, and there was a wee bit of an issue there, and that kind of made Andy said, right, the one with most caps will get his choice. And that's how it was done. But if you have a superstition, like I think Paul liked number Paul Lambert liked number 14, so he got that. But all the outfield players, all the players want number 10, don't they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'll start if you've got number 10. Uh, it, would, it would be interesting to know uh, things like that. And I wouldn't presume to say to Steve what to do if he you know, there are things I feel strongly about, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, I think everyone knows, I feel strongly about the substitution situation and the attitude of the bench players and things like that. And you, you look at them and you watch them when you send them for a warm-up 
and, and are they supervised or do they go on their own? And I see every club and I, I watch and I used to say to the physio boys, take their pulse count when they come back and it's, they're not going on until it's at least three quarters of the maximum. You know, and they knew that they couldn't, you know, some players warm up as if they're in the half they weren't starting. And then they remember the Croatian player. He, he caused chaos because he was asked to go on and refused to go on. You remember that? Mm. I noted it down there just so, <laughs> you know, and, and he was sent home, the, the Croatian player. And I, I'm having a look at that. Kalinic, there it is, Nikola Kalinic. He was sent home from the tournament because he was asked to go on and he said, I'm not going on. Why did he say that? Presumably because it was in a huff that he wasn't on from the start and he was getting put on as a sub on the on. So the, 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 the creation manager sent him home. Anyway, I'm getting... Hi, <laughs> not a problem. Not a problem. It's, st- it's still good to hear these wee managerial insights as well. And um, lastly, just to wrap things up, you can be as realistic or as unrealistic and wild as you possibly want here. Uh, how do you see us doing in the Euros? Well, you know, I think uh, that with 16 teams getting out the, the, the first group stage, I think, I wouldn't like to say, but I think we're a certain, you know, I feel... The way Steve's got them playing, I think we're very, very strong favourites, certainly to get into the last 16. And then from then, anything can happen. You know, I hear it's a wee bit of a distortion to say that, uh, you know, the first time they've ever got out, the first time they've ever got to the knockout stages, you know, because we were in the knockout stages before, uh, and I keep going on the way back when Andy, when there was only eight, and even you know when we were in Euro '96, we didn't get to the, the knockout stages uh, then. But the only 16, 16 qualified then, you know. So to get to the last sixteen is where we've been before. In the last, in fact, we were better than that with Andy. Uh, so I'm absolutely certain we'll get to the last sixteen. We'll, we just need to win one of the win one of the group games. We'll get two games at home, win one of the group games, and I think we're really certain to do that. I think, you know, people that despise, well, not despise, but they, they think, ah, it's only Croatia, and that's only half a, sorry, it's only Czech Republic, it's only half of the Czechoslovakia, because there was a big country called Czechoslovakia, <laughs> and now it's two small country. Well, Czech Republic's twice the size of Scotland, you know, and their, their enthusiasm for football is unbounded. So we can think all we like that, uh, you know, we are a superior nation, but the Czech Republic will be a very, very difficult opponent because they've got 10 million people, we've got the 5 million, they're roughly anyway, and they're a very, very good, traditionally a good football side. Now, Croatia too, Croatia are slightly smaller in Scotland in numbers but in football ability and in uh, how can I put it current placings they're better than Scotland Croatia England we just take them we take it for granted we'll beat them Aye, of course <laughs> well you know they, they are one of the major nations in world football and we can't deny that much as though uh, there are bitter enemies and we want to win the game against England 
But uh, you know, I don't think we need to have any inferiority complex in any of these games. And I'm long-windedly telling you, I think we'll qualify at least to the last 16 and then with a, a favourable draw, we can go right through this uh, competition. Well, all you need to do, I suppose, for inspiration is just look at uh, Portugal, the winners in 2016. I mean, they they didn't win a, a single game in their group and somehow they qualified as one of the four best third-place teams and then they just turned it on and they won it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And then I remember way back, I remember Greece winning it. So thanks very much for speaking to us, Craig. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed being with you and I compliment you on your questions and in your knowledge of football. I'm really impressed. So thank you very much, Andy. At the start of the podcast, we asked you which other sport apart from football that Andy Gorham represented Scotland at. The answer is cricket. The goalie represented Scotland at cricket four times between 1989 and 1991 in addition to playing in goals. Gorham turned out for the likes of Penny Cook, Kelso, West Lothian County and Uddingston Cricket Clubs and it was only when Walter Smith demanded that he concentrated on his football career that he stopped playing cricket. He made a comeback in 2016 for an over-50s match for Scotland against Lancashire County and remains the only man to have played both in a first-class cricket international and a full international in football. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Scottish Football Citizen. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And join us again next week when we'll be looking back at more of the best of Scottish football from the past. If you'd like an extra football fix in your inbox every Tuesday, you can subscribe to Football Memories Scotland's weekly newsletter the football special and receive an email full of excellent pictures and stories from days gone by to find out more email lindsay at lindsay.hamilton at scottishfootballmuseum.org.uk The Scottish Football Citizen is written, edited and produced by Andy Kerr for Football Memories Scotland in association with Alzheimer's Scotland and the Scottish Football Museum Additional contributions from Robert Harvey, Jim Orr, Lindsay Hamilton and Richard McBearty. Special thanks to Craig Brown for appearing in this episode.